Good afternoon, and you're welcome to The Week That Really Was, a brand new podcast hosted here on Gripped Media with me, John McGurk, editor of that platform, and my very good friend, commentator David Quinn. Um, David, for many years, you have been the bane of liberal Ireland, and it's great to have you have you with me for this uh, new series as we move forward. So how are you this afternoon? I'm good, I'm good. And I suppose we should tell our listeners um, why we decided to do this. Uh, and so the reason is there's an incredibly suffocating political, social media consensus out there that nowadays consists basically of the kind of perceived centre-left view challenged almost exclusively and only by the hard left, uh, people like Paul Murphy and Richard Boyd Barrett and so on, and um, a conservative voice, a voice to the right, even, you know, practically a Theresa May centre-right type voice is very, really heard. You can't really count Fine Gael anymore. Um, I don't really know why Fine Gael exists anymore. Same question we can ask about the Conservative Party in Britain. They seem to just ape social democratic policies all the time. Um, so I don't think, I mean, Fine Gael are the establishment, so, the, you know, they don't challenge the consensus. And so basically, you might say, in frustration, we have decided to set this up and look back and what we think was the week that really was, that is, offer a fresh and different interpretation of the events of the week. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so necessary. And when, when, when we decided to do this for listeners, I mean, we're not sure where this will go or uh, whether you'll enjoy it or whether you'll just think we're two grumpy old men like Statler and Waldorf from the Muppets. But we're going to try and just give our honest opinions. That's all we can offer you. And if you like them, we hope that you'll keep listening and support us. So I said a minute ago, David, that you have, have been for many years the bane of liberal Ireland. But I'm afraid to say that in recent years, that title has, has slipped. You've slipped down the rankings because I think you're now only two or three because Boris Johnson stole that crown from you. I mean, Fintan <laughs> has never written as many articles about anything as he's written about Boris Johnson. And, and, and as we're sitting here today, I mean, nightmare on Kildare Street nightmare in Montrose. There is the, the very real and live possibility that the great, the great um, what is it, Fintan O'Toole called him? I can't recall. But the great something bad or other might be on his way back. Well, um, in July, when this whole farce began and Boris was basically gone, um, I tweeted, he's only 58. He could be back. Um, and But I was thinking, maybe in years to come. I didn't dream that here we would be in October discussing that very possibility. I mean, it just goes to show you. Um, he obviously, and, and from his own point of view, rightly resented being kicked out. He had won an 80-seat majority for the Tories. He was very stupid about the, you know, about Partygate and made it easy for his enemies, of which there are many in the Tory party among the Remainers. So they absolutely hate him. And of course, the establishment absolutely completely detest him. Um, uh, our establishment to test it would basically take their lead from The Guardian and the BBC. I wouldn't know how to think without them. And the Irish Times is kind of an echo chamber for them as well. So is RTE. And so Boris, they just royally detest. And we're glad to see the back of him. And now we have the possibility that he may be back. Um, it's incredible. I, by the way, I mean, I, I'm no particular fan of Boris. Um, Boris, to me, is a kind of... How would you describe him? Um, he's, on social issues, I wouldn't consider him much of a conservative. Um, um, 
he, despite his support for Brexit, um, would be pretty much pro-globalization. I mean, I used to be very pro-globalization. I'm kind of modified now in that opinion. He's all for um, uh, net zero carbon emissions. Um, so I was never a kind of cheerleader, a booster, a Boris. Um, but while a kind of Ireland is enjoying this moment of schadenfreude at the expense of um, of the Tories and Britain and the Brexiteers, might we be permitted to enjoy a little bit of schadenfreude as they absolutely reach for the smelling salts of the prospect of Boris coming back? Well, I, I find all this very interesting because, of course, we're not allowed to consider character in public office anymore. Um, you know, personal character, personal lives are off limits. In fact, if Irish politics has one rule above all, as you and I both know, it's that people's personal lives are personal and we're not to talk about them. But there's an exception made for Boris Johnson with his however many wives and whoever knows many kids. And I think that's legitimate. I think it's fair to look at Boris Johnson and say, well, this is the guy's character in his personal life. Why should the public expect any different? They should expect the same level of fidelity as his various wives have received. I think that's a fair take and a fair criticism. I just find it very difficult um, coming from people who in another context tells us none of, tell us none of that stuff matters. That you can, you know, that these things are all matters of personal choice and freedom and, and all the rest of it. But we won't go into that in too much detail here. I think with Boris um, there are two things I would say about him. The first is that I find it very, very, very difficult to listen to all these people saying that, oh, Brexit has caused this, you know, Brexit has unleashed terrible instability. When most of the instability as a result of Brexit, at least the political instability, has been unleashed by people who never wanted it to happen in the first place. I mean, we, we hear today that, oh, there should be an election in Britain. We can't continue with this kind of instability. But that's from the very same people, David, and you won't hear this on Pat Kenny, but it's from the very same people who, in 2019, when Boris Johnson was first prime minister and had no mandate, no majority, couldn't pass a bill through parliament. There were votes every evening on the television to see who would win or lose by one vote. I don't know if you remember all this. Mm -hmm. The These were the same people who said, no, you can't have an election. No, we can't have an election. This stability has to, instability has to stay in place for as long as, as we it takes for us to get Brexit stopped. Um, and of course, now the same people flip the script. Oh, you can't possibly have uh, this instability, there must be an election, precisely because they now think they might win one. So the idea that it's only been one side contributing to political instability in Britain is for the birds. That's my first point. And my mm -hmm. second point is, I don't see how the Tory party in good faith can select anybody else. It's not that I'm pro-Boris, as I say. I think his character is very poor and I think his leadership is weak. But he's the only person in Britain with any mandate to lead that country. The only person who's been elected in or voted in by the voters, and people say, oh, they vote for individual MPs. I mean, they do on the backside vote for individual MPs. They vote for the party leader, just like they voted for Tony Blair and they voted for Margaret Thatcher and John Major once. They voted for Boris Johnson to get Brexit done. And he's the only person with any kind of standing electoral mandate at the moment. So I, I think he should come back. Well, um, I suppose um, uh, the counter-argument would be that... Um, you know, the whole party gay thing damaged him very badly. And then from a Tory MP point of view, they're thinking he was becoming unpopular 
um, more people wanted him out than wanted him to stay in, uh, that he was damaging them very badly electorally. Now, of course, we know what happens to us quickly. They're now 30 points down at the polls. I think when Boris left, they were maybe five or 10 down at the polls. But the Tories are mainly thinking about how do as many of us as possible get re-elected in the coming electoral disaster, no matter what, but just how bad will the disaster be and what will the Labour uh, uh, the Labour majority be? So they'd be casting around thinking, is Boris the best person to limit the damage that's going to be done to us in the next however long before the next election, uh, which could be months or it could be a couple of years. And they might be thinking, well, Rissy Sunak is the guy or Penny Mordant is the girl and go for one of them instead. Um, and if I was a Tory MP, I'm not entirely sure who I'd vote for. I would probably look around to see who is the best unity candidate Um Rissy is completely hated by the Johnsonites. Um, the Johnsonites are completely hated by Rissy and co. Um, I don't think either of them can be a unity candidate. I think the Tories badly need a unity candidate. I don't know enough about Tory politics to ask to know whether Penny Morton is the best unity candidate or Ben Wallace. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. All I do know is that when Boris was sacked as prime minister in June, the Tories were on course to lose the next election. They were losing by about 10 points in the polls. Um, you know, as we sit here today talking about this, they were on course not to have a Tory party after the next election. The most recent poll published last night had them trailing by 51% to 19. That's Those are not figures uh, in which there are safe seats. Um, they are. They, it's reminiscent of what happened to the Canadian Conservative Party in 1992, when when literally unthinkable happened and the entire party was wiped out. Although they uh, stayed to come back. Well, they they did, but uh, it took them. What did it take them? Twenty years. So I'm I mean, sure. it's it it took them a very uh, certainly. I I don't think they entered government again until the mid 2000s. I mean, you got well, Stephen Stephen Harper, but I can't remember. Yeah. How long it took? But let's talk about the um. The gloating over here that's been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, and this idea that um, we're an oasis of calm and stability. One of the reasons we're an oasis of calm and stability is because we're in the European Union. Um, now, go back to the crash of 0708. Um, we were in the EU. Um, the economy completely and utterly came to a hard landing as a result of the property boom coming to an end in the most spectacularly disastrous way. So we were apparently being ruled by wise heads. Um, we were in the European Union and therefore apparently safe. Everything was stable in the euro. Of course, we don't have control over our interest rates anymore. We don't have control over exchange rates anymore. Um, German banks are putting money into the banks here and uh, buying bonds and all that kind of thing. So were we not supposed to be safe from everything? Were, were we not supposed to be well governed? Almost the entire political establishment was invested in the property bubble. The media were completely invested in it because they were getting so much revenue out of property ads. Um, they were all cheerleading it on. Um, people who questioned whether actually this might come to an end badly were condemned utterly. And so many of the middle class were so deeply invested in property that they didn't want to hear a single word of warning in case it all came to grief for them. So that's, you know, a relatively short time ago. Then in comes the Troika to bail us out. Now, as bad and all as things are in Britain right now, 
I don't think we're into bailout territory for Britain and the IMF, etc., having to come in to rescue it. That's where we were only a few short years ago. The Troika was here for, what, about three years before they finally left. We had the period of austerity. So I'm not entirely sure that our political establishment, many of them still in the doll to this day, look at Hall Martin, um, are in any position to gloat about what's going on in Britain. And furthermore, look around Europe right now. Um, you have France which um, has been hit by strikes that are affecting the supply of petrol to the petrol pumps. The left, led by Mélenchon in the National Assembly, is trying to stir up as much trouble as they can. I was reading Mara, um, sorry, Lara Marlowe in the Irish Times, uh, and she was saying, actually, Le Pen has been kind of quiet and kind of sensible and is trying to gain um, a reputation for respectability. Meanwhile, it's the, it's the left, the kind of Bernie Saunders-type left, that are trying to tear the country down. And we might get another Yellow Vest-type movement. So again, as bad as it is in Britain, they didn't have street insurrection. They didn't have these protesters going into the streets of their local towns and cities and breaking everything up and rioting in a huge way in the capital city. That has not happened. I mean, this was poll tax stuff. And this could happen again. Um, and and other European countries could be easily faced into a similar situation this winter. And who knows what kind of crisis is awaiting the euro. So this idea that it's all safe inside the EU is a total load of rubbish. Yeah, but I don't think RTE know France exists. I mean, they know conceptually that France exists, as in it's a big blob of a country there beside England. But I mean, you, I mean, you don't hear about what happens in France. I mean, one of our most popular stories on Grip this week was the story of a horrendous murder of a 12-year-old girl. Um, mm-hmm. um, absolutely horrendous. Uh, it's captured the attention of France and Europe and almost every country in, in, in on the continent, well, apart from I, here. I did not know about that. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, it's, um, uh, you know, stories from the continent don't get told unless they re- reinforce a particular narrative. And that is the the number one rule of Irish journalism. You do not report anything from the outside world, outside of these little islands of ours, unless it reinforces a particular narrative. So well, you, even this, yeah, yeah you, 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 you go to you go to France and you report the election as the rise of Le Pen and Macron's triumph over the far right. Uh, you go to Italy and you report their election as the dangerous destabilizing victory of the far right. Um, you go to the United States and you report what the Democrats are doing this week to stave off the hated far right. Mm. You go anywhere you go, you go with the view of bringing back stories to our people that reinforce that the Irish way is the right way and that everyone else is fighting the same basic just fight that we are for progressivism. And no other narrative gets in. And that's 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 one of the reasons we're doing this podcast mm. is because we won't spend a lot of time every week talking about the rest of the world. All of the time. But you're right to say that France is, if not a basket case, then certainly facing troubles. Mm-hmm. In German, Germany this week, um, we we reported, um, which nobody else in the Irish media did again, um, a story where literally in one day, four of the oldest companies in Germany went, went bust this week, or old manufacturing businesses because of the gas crisis and the energy crisis, mm-hmm. um, at the cost of thousands of jobs. Um, these things are happening... And Irish people don't hear about them. We only hear the narrative that we're safe and well and we're in the EU and whatever happens. And the way it works, of course, is no matter if something does happen that's bad, it can only have been worse if we weren't in the EU and mm-hmm. the EU can never have been a contributing a contributing factor to it. So it's it's completely 
beyond the realms of possibility to go on Irish television and make the perfectly coherent economic case that actually a single currency and a single interest rate across a whole continent doesn't necessarily suit an outlying regional part of that continent um, with a very small and very different economy to an economy like that in, say, Slovenia. Um, or a very large and very different economy like Italy yep. is compared to the German economy. I mean, by the way, is we, like this week... Um, uh, Sweden is the new government, the centre-right government, backed from the outside by the Sweden Democrats, who are um, far-right um, and do have actual neo-Nazi roots. Um, but in the reporting of it, you see all about that. Then in about paragraph 5 million, you see that the Sweden Democrats got 20% of the vote in the recent election, the second highest in the country behind the Social Democrats, because of crime. But it fills in no details. It doesn't tell us, well, what crime? Committed by who? What are the real concerns here, Swedish people? No detail is given to us whatsoever about it. This is not reporting. And a point I frequently make is all the complaints about fake news, media bias, which is systematic and chronic, is the functional equivalent of fake news because it gives us a partial and biased misunderstanding of just about every single possible issue. And even when we are wrong, John, we're still going to be offering a, di a different perspective that allows people to say, well, okay, haven't thought of that, don't agree, but actually I'm going to calibrate my view a little and change it a notch because I'm, I'm hearing things here that I simply never heard before. For example, the four big companies in Germany closing down. Well, speaking of things you never heard before, uh, because one of the things I want listeners to know that we're not setting an agenda for this podcast every week. We're just literally having a chat, as David and I regularly do on the telephone, um, moaning about the state of the country. And one day I said, you know, we should record this. David actually said we should record this and put it up for other people to listen to. Um, but you said um, you said about crime in Sweden and you said, you know, things you don't see that often. I saw something new this week, David. I saw Paul Kyo, Batman. Paul Kyo, Finnegale TD from Wexford, suddenly Ar Ireland's leading crime fighter, the caped crusader himself standing up against druggies on O'Connell Street. Um, to now, use his word. To use his word. Use word, druggies. And of course, Aidan O'Reardon out to to defend the poor, poor maligned drug addicts of O'Connell Street from such horrendous mm -hmm. abuse. But isn't it astonishing? Here's a guy who's been in government on the back benches for, tw for 11 years, never introduced to my knowledge, a single piece of legislation about crime, never spoken up about it before. But as soon as RTE mentioned crime in O'Connell Street, well, all of a sudden you have the Social Democrats laying down motions. You have Fine Gael TDs uh, taking, taking the Guardie to task. You have the Minister for Justice out today promising that her hate speech bill will lead to tougher sentences for crime. It is literally as if, and I wrote this in a piece today, and, and maybe the rhetoric was a bit over the top, but there's a scene in Lord of the Rings near the end of the, mm. of the Return of the King where... Um, you know, the, the, the assembled armies are outside the Black Gates of Mordor mm. and you see the eye turning from the tower and mm. all of the energies of the orcs are suddenly focused in one direction. And it's it's as if RTE is that great eye. Where they look, every politician jumps and where they are not looking, no attention can be focused. It, it is it's so pathetic. And I use that word advisedly. It is just, I mean, nobody in this country cared about crime until literally two minutes ago. Uh, when Orty did a piece, and all of a sudden we have uh, Paul Kyo, crime fighter extraordinaire. And I mean, uh, I, I just find the way the country operates at times to be baffling. Well, I mean, I would be in the, in the O'Connell Street area practically every day because I get off my bus nearby um, and I work in that area. 
for a good number of years as well. Um, and the area has been in an appalling state for years and years and years and years. So this didn't happen today or yesterday, although it may be getting somewhat worse at the moment. And as you say, there was practically no concern about it. And then RTE decided to make a programme um, and they air it on Tuesday night. And suddenly there's all this concern. And as you say, there was no concern beforehand. So, uh, and I think you said in your piece today, why don't we just directly elect the producers and presenters and researchers of RTE to run the country? Because they completely set the agenda and the politicians almost completely danced to their tune, including, by the way, in the property crisis, every public spending, absolutely everything. They are absolutely terrified to go against the agenda and try to set their own agenda. And again, this is trying to make our small little contribution towards a tiny little adjustment, maybe, in, in in the understanding of some people of public issues. Well, my favourite bit this week, I have to say, was uh, of, of Paul Keogh. I just, I can't stop laughing at Paul Keogh, I'm sorry, but, but it was when he said, he said that he was going to call them druggies, and I, I'm paraphrasing now, this isn't a direct quote, but it's almost a direct quote. He said, he said, and I don't care what the PC brigade have to say. <laughs> I don't care what the PC brigade have to say. I mean, you are the PC brigade, Paul. You have been for a very long time. I mean, all of a sudden, it is, and I wrote today, and I want to emphasize what I wrote, but it's my opinion. That's why I wrote it. It's that five minutes ago, people were, they were afraid to say things like that on crime because it might be racist or bigoted or the wrong way to talk about criminals. We talk about crime in this country in a particular way. We talk about social disadvantage. We talk about deprived communities. We talk about the importance of investment in education and early skills and all of that sort of stuff to stop this kind of thing happening. And it's all well and good, but it's led to a situation where too many people are afraid to say what the truth is, which is that Dublin doesn't have only a deprivation problem. It has in some areas, but it also has a bad career problem. It has a, and, and pardon the language, but it has a bit of a scumbag problem in some areas. And that's the reality. And, and all of a sudden, Paul Murphy's not afraid to say it because Orty gave him permission. I mean, Paul Keogh, yeah. Oh, sorry, Paul uh, Keogh. Paul, uh, yeah. Paul Murphy's the one guy who stuck to the script. <laughs> he, he was like, no, you can't say that. But, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm going to go bleeding hard for a minute. Um, had I been in the door, I wouldn't have used the term druggy. I would have said drug addicts. Um, I mean, you do have um, really awful social problems um, that lead to this kind of thing. Um, and it is, a, I mean, it is a social problem we need to do our best to solve. But by the same token, and you see, this is the side of the equation that most commentary and analysis in this country seems to miss out on. Ordinary people walking down O'Connell Street and the surrounding area have a right to feel safe. And tourists have a right to feel safe. And this seems to be forgotten about, that there's two sides of the equation here. And there is a common good to be pursued. And the common good can't all be about um, neglecting O'Connell Street for fear of tackling the problem head on and naming the problem head on and making the street feel safe again for ordinary people. And by the way, so that people, uh, shopkeepers in the area can begin to do a bit of business again because people feel safer walking up and down the street and feel safer walking up and down Henry Street and what have you. You're completely correct. But can I just say, when you said there a minute ago, you said that you wouldn't say druggies. I thought that was very revealing because I don't think Paul Keogh would say druggies either. You wouldn't say it, David, because you don't think it. Right, mm. you don't don't think of people that way. But Paul Paul Kyo, I'm sorry if I keep getting his name wrong. Paul Kyo thinks that's how you think. 
he thinks that anyone concerned about crime is is he's been he's been drummed into him for years that they're all far right lunatics and they say they say shocking things and they think shocking things. So he thinks the best way to communicate to them is to speak their language and say druggies instead of drug addicts. That's part of the problem. Um, but you are, you are completely correct. I think that you know we have an entire armada of state organizations and state-funded organizations, NGOs coming out her years focusing on housing and deprivation and all these social issues. And there is not one of them to represent the ordinary punter walking down the street and afraid of getting quacked over the head with a bottle from behind, as has happened to people on O'Connell Street this year. They're the ones who don't count. They're the ones who you can't you you can't submit an application to the part to the department of something or other for a funding application for an NGO to represent the ordinary Joe. And that skews our discussion, but that's a whole different podcast. I want to move on before we come to an end, because we're going to try to keep these to about half an hour every week, um, to uh, a related issue in relation to housing uh, and mm. deprivation, which is what's happening in Killarney in County Kerry, where this week it was reported in the Irish Examiner that you have county council officials going door to door to people who run Airbnbs, telling them that they are no longer allowed to rent their uh, their houses out in short-term lettings uh, and will be fined €300 Euros for every night that they let it out in a short-term letting. This is at the same time, um, for listeners who don't know maybe, that the population of Killarney has increased since the summer, according to Paul Trevo, a local restaurateur, by 13%. So the hotels are full and now you can't, um, you can't rent out short-term lettings to people in the middle of autumn, in the middle of the deer rut, in the middle of when Killarney is at its most beautiful and golden and lots of tourists come. So my question, David, is if you were the government and you were trying to destroy the tourist industry of a small town like Killarney, what would you do differently? Well, essentially nothing. There's obviously, if you get all the hotels occupied or mainly occupied and they get the Airbnb short term, you're not allowed to do that. Well, you've kind of put a horse and cart, a horse and four uh, through the tourism industry, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Um but you see, again, um, you see, to me, and this is is obviously related to, to the immigration debate, um, um, any policy in Ireland um, has to pursue the common good. Um, this week, by the way, um, we saw this eviction moratorium, uh, which is about to be imposed from uh, 1st of November to the 31st of March, so nobody can be evicted unless they're not paying the rent or something. Um, so... This was um, uh, justified in the name of the common good, and the constitution allows you to allows the government to limit property rights in the name of the common good. And if the measure is proportionate, so they think this pursues the common good and it's proportionate. So, you know, no policy can be brought in to solve one problem that might actually cause other problems and maybe make other problems worse, and in the round actually cause net harm. And so, any policy in any given area of the country or any given area of society, or whatever the case may be, has to look at things in the round. Is it proportionate? What harms is this causing? Um, and so if in an area like Killarney, you are beginning to harm something that many ordinary people work extremely hard to make a living from, like tourism, well, then you have an absolute perfect right to ask hard questions and not be denounced for it. And I would go further and say those who do try to suppress uh, such questions are being absolutely 
and totally unfair to people who do work very hard to make a living and who do take risks. And if their business goes bust, well, too bad, you know, you've gone bankrupt. People who themselves don't take those risks to make a living. Well, um, I, I, and so they have an absolute right to be represented and have their voices heard. I, I want to do a full episode of this show at some stage on housing um, because I think it's such a, a massive issue. But I, I'll just make two brief comments endorsing everything you said. The first is that Richard Boyd Barrett said this week ludicrously about the, the eviction ban that, oh, if, uh, if it drives small landlords out of the market, well, the state can just buy the houses. I mean, first of all, it can't because those landlords can sell to German pension funds who'll offer more money, which they will. But secondly, the cavalier attitude towards people and their property and their rights that, you know, it doesn't matter if somebody who has a house uh, now has somebody in it who might potentially be wrecking it. Uh, you know, the state will just buy the house off them and keep the person who's wrecking the house in place. That attitude to property to me and to people's rights is just disgusting. Although, although the eviction ban uh, a moratorium doesn't extend to people who are you know, wrecking the house or who are not paying the rent. It's, it's yeah. just stop. Yeah. So you're, you know. cor- you're correct, but I think Richard Boyd Barrett would like that it did. Um, and, oh, I'm sure that's correct. And, and, and you know, and it's that attitude that I'm speaking about. It's disgusting, in my view. Um, uh, that's my opinion. But, but, um, the, the, the second point in relation to it is that for years and years and years now, we've heard this constant demonization of landlords. Landlords mm. are greedy. Landlords are, they're this, that, that, and the other. They're doing all sorts of horrible things. There's not a week that goes past without a story about the badness of landlords. I think there's neither of us landlords, John. Um, neither of us are landlords. Is that correct? Yeah, neither, correct. Neither so we have no vested interest in this we discussion, have, we, have no, we have no vested interest whatsoever. But I will say this. What happens when the landlords are gone? We know they're 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 exiting the market at a huge rate. Um, so what happens when they're all gone? I mean, I suspect the answer is just going to be demonise some other group. We already the state, is. The state will have to be the landlord there, apparently. Yeah. Um, I'm mentioning um, in my Sunday Times column at the weekend because I'm writing about this. Um, Sweden um, ruled for most of its modern history by the Social Democrats, and um, something like. Half of rental property in Stockholm is subject to government-imposed rent controls. Um, but guess what? Property in Stockholm is in such so short supply that you have got to queue for nearly 10 years before you can get into one of those affordable um, uh, units. Mm-hmm. So, okay, is this the dream? No, it's not. I mean, we all know that the basic problem is a lack of supply. But in the meantime, you don't keep on passing policies that drive more and more landlords out of the market, who, who are mostly people, by the way, small business people. I mean, not even business people, they're just simply somebody who's um, investing their money in the hope of making a bit more money because that's what make the, makes the economy go round. And to be demonising them like they're rack renters from the 19th century is absolutely absurd. We need them. We need more of them. And instead, the social attitudes towards them and the policies we're passing are almost guaranteed, as you say, to make them extinct as a class, in which case the whole situation ends up much worse. And, and something that needs to be said um, briefly is actually a small contribution to all of this, to the lack of supply of houses, is the fact that Ireland, during COVID, kept the, um, the property industry locked down for longer than anybody else in Europe, something often brought up by the construction industry. 
we just cared so much more than anybody else, David. But anyway, look, uh, we we leave it there, folks. Uh, uh, and always remember, David, no matter how bad a thing gets in Ireland, it could be worse. We could be Brexit Britain. Uh, that is the basis, after all, of every Fint No Tool column and every Irish Times column that I read on the subject for the last couple of years. So listen, folks, I have been John McGurk. He has been David Quinn. Uh, this has been a, a chat that I certainly enjoyed. Whether you did or not is entirely something that I'm sure you'll tell us in the comments. Uh, but we'll be back next week and every week for the foreseeable future, uh, taking you through the week that we think really was. Thank you. Enjoy your weekend. And we'll chat to you here next Friday. <laughs>